I want to share a story with you about a teacher in the south of Israel. It's probably a story that you maybe haven't heard and I'd imagine are not prepared for. This teacher taught in high school, taught a regular Israeli school. Her class had let out. She had left the classroom, and one of her students forgot something in the class and went back in the class. And there, on the table, the teacher's table, was an iPad. The student, all alone in the room, thought that someone had forgotten their iPad, and most likely it was the teacher. So the student did what most of us would do, opened up the iPad to check and see whose it was. There was an ambiguous picture on the cover, so they opened it up and there was no code. And as the student opened up the iPad and started to peruse through some of the pictures that were on to see who it belonged to, he realized two things. One, the iPad belonged to the teacher. And two, there were a host of pictures on the iPad of the teacher and her husband that were taken in the privacy of their own room that were now being exposed to this student, 15 years young. Obviously, the teacher did this with her husband, with some sense of consent, but now her 15-year-old student had seen it. The student did what most 15-year-old students would do. He called together a few of his friends, five or six, and said, look what I found. His friends, no more than five or six said, we need to report this to the principal. And they immediately, without passing go, went directly to the Israeli principal's office, knocked on the door, explained exactly what had happened. Went back into the class, I forgot something. I saw an iPad, I didn't know whose it was. I opened it up, I checked the pictures to see who it belonged to, and we saw these. The principal called the teacher in. In essence, she had done no crime except for being forgetful. And the teacher is beyond mortified. She doesn't want to go back to teach, and she doesn't want to face her students, even though only a handful of them had seen this, and they weren't disseminated in any way. The principal of the school acknowledged that the teacher had done no crime except for being forgetful, which who amongst us hasn't committed a crime like that? The school board is trying to find a transfer for her to another school, but since the story has become viral, she already has determined that she doesn't think she wants to teach in the region anymore. This story is a story that resonates perhaps with many of us, and if it doesn't, if you read the paper, it will. Because in the last 10 days, a host of celebrities, almost all of them women, have had their private cell phones, computers, and smartphones hacked into, and private pictures that they have taken, either selfies or things that they have done with their spouses or their significant others, in a private and consensual way, with compromising pictures, have been not only hacked into, but then put on the World Wide Web and disseminated for the world to see. This includes the likes of Jennifer Lawrence, Kate Upton, Ariana Grande, Hope Solo, and a host of others. And all of these people have chosen not to expose their naked bodies for the world to see. They've chosen to expose themselves for people that they particularly choose, and in these cases, 
their significant others, their spouses to enjoy and to celebrate. As I have followed this story, and perhaps you have also on the news, I have been bewildered at so many responses that have surfaced. One that I see often is what business did they have taking these pictures in the first place? What business did they have taking these pictures? Which I think is the absolute wrong question. It is, if I may, tantamount to saying she had too short a skirt on. She had it coming to her. How could we dare think or say such a thing? This was done as an act of privacy. If anyone here has ever had their banking system hacked into, which sadly, Dory and I have had before. Someone hacked into our computer system once and they took around $4,500 from our checking account. It was an obscene violation, but I didn't hear anyone say at that time, if it happened to any of you, what business do you have putting your money in a bank that offers online banking? I share all of this with you not because I'm so concerned with this one particular teacher or with Jennifer Lawrence, Kate Upton, Ariana Grande, Hope Solar, or any of these others. I share it with you because of the worry and concern I have of the deep blurring of the lines between what is public and what is private. When we entered the spring on a slow news day, we learned about the owner of the Los Angeles Clippers, a Jew by the name of Donald Sterling, who had said some really awful things about black people. Things that as a Jew and as a human being caused me great embarrassment. But here's the question, and I share with you honestly, this question was not posed by me, it was posed by the great basketball legend Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. He asked the question, Donald Sterling is having a private conversation with his nanny slash mistress slash secretary V. Stiviano. He does not know he's being recorded in this conversation. And she baits him into a conversation in which he says some things that I find personally abhorrent. She then basically blackmails him, hits him upside the head, and he is forced to deal with all of the fallout, the selling of the team, the sanctions, and all that comes with it. Now, let me be very clear. What Donald Sterling said is horrible. I don't endorse one word of it. And there's not a person here who knows me who think I would. And I'm embarrassed that he and I are from the same tribe. But... And this is the point that Kareem Abdul-Jabbar makes, and I couldn't agree more. Didn't we just, as an entire society, raise our hand in protest over the NSA illegally tapping phones and private conversations of people that didn't need to have that privacy violated? Why is it unacceptable for the National Security Council to interfere in our lives for things that they deem to protect our safety and our world, but it's acceptable for this person to tape record a person 
without them knowing, and then put it on the public world stage for everyone to offer condemnation to the point where he has to take losses, embarrassment, and sanctions. My point is saying he's entitled to have these horrible views. That's the beauty of the world. But when we take something that was said privately and we catapult it into the public sphere, have we done a crime in doing so? I was at my mom's house not oh so long ago, and since my dad died, we spent a lot of time cleaning out whatever we can clean out. My mom opened up this box and she gave it to me. It was a stack of letters that I had written my freshman year of college, 1990, when I was overseas in Israel. I had said all types of things, and I had a girlfriend at the time, and I'm sure she has a stack, hope probably burned them since then, but she had a stack of letters and what I realized is that we say all types of things in these letters, good things, bad things, things that we reflect upon, things that are meaningful to us. But today, today if we were sharing those correspondences, they would be via email. And with literally one stroke of our finger, that private connection that I shared with my mother and father, and that stack of thoughts and reflections on being in Israel, from everything of what it was to celebrate Israel Independence Day, to homesickness, to going on dates, to dealing with my roommates. It lived in our private sphere. But with the stroke of a finger on email, it becomes viral. Perhaps by accident. Perhaps because there's a funny line in there. Perhaps because someone likes the writing. Perhaps because someone wants to shep some nachis. But we have taken, again, a whole other world that lives in the private, and we've catapulted it through technology and to the public. Thanks to Mark Zuckerberg, we are part of a Facebook nation. And Facebook does something really interesting. Facebook takes something that is supposed to be private, makes it public, but as if it's giving a peephole into everyone's private life. Like, this is what I'm eating for dinner, and these are my kids before they go here, and this is what I'm wearing before I go out to dinner, and all these kinds of things that we do. And I think most of you in here, especially if you're on Facebook, know exactly what I'm talking about. It has allowed us to share the political views we might share with another over coffee with all of our followers, as is Twitter and Instagram. They're all synonymous here. But what we've really done is we've lied to ourselves. And we've lied to ourselves because when we offer that peephole, when we offer that glimpse into what is the private, we put up this veneer with a whole lot of polish that makes it look shiny, as if it's private, but knowing that it's public. Because if it weren't so shiny, and it weren't flattering, we would never put it up in the first place. If it were something that were raw and real, we never would expose it to all of our followers, whether they be three or 3,000. Sometimes, having a viral world, having grown into a level of big brotherhood, where we are watched and seen and captured, has value. Sometimes. Not all the time, but sometimes. One such case happened in Atlantic City when Ray Rice punched his wife, Janae, in a public elevator and dragged her into a public lobby. If that would have happened 30 years ago, there would only be accusation, hearsay, he said, she said. But today, the facts are indisputable. 
Today, things like capturing those horrible crimes allow us a sense of directness which removes ambiguity, offers clarity to ensure as best as we can that these horrible acts don't happen again. I share all of this with you because it's my job to take what's happening in the world and to synthesize it with what happens in our tradition. And I want to teach you two important lessons about Judaism. The first lesson is that we know we're not allowed to break Shabbat. There are things that we're supposed to do on Shabbat, things we're not supposed to do, and we're not allowed to break Shabbat. But the rabbis give us two categories of breaking Shabbat. To break Shabbat, they call mechalel Shabbat. But to break Shabbat publicly is called mechalel Shabbat pefarhesia, meaning to publicly violate Shabbat and is considered a more egregious crime. So, let me give you a simple example. If I'm not supposed to cook on Shabbat, if my kids are hungry and I choose to cook macaroni and cheese for them, I have violated Shabbat, and that is called Mechalel Shabbat. But if I choose to go into my front yard and to make an entire vat of macaroni and cheese for the entire world to see, and to offer everyone to come and take some, that's called Mechalel Shabbat Befarhesia. That's called breaking Shabbat, not just between me and God, but between me and God and for all the world to see that I'm rejecting it. And it's considered a newer, higher, worse level of the crime. It's the way that the rabbis told us, unequivocally, that there's a difference between what happens publicly and there's a difference between what happens privately. And that we have to have those boundaries in our world and in our life. Whether we are rabbis of synagogues, presidents of the United States, or small business owners, all of us, are entitled to a level of privacy. And that if we choose to do things we're not supposed to, there is a difference. There is a difference in doing it in the public square or in the private square. There's a fascinating teaching that comes into play when talking about the laws of mourning. Imagine, God forbid, you lost someone that requires you to sit shiva. But you're an accountant, and this person died on April 10th, and you've sat Shiva for three days, and if you continue sitting Shiva, you won't be able to file the tax returns you need to, which gives you critical income for your family, affords them to go to Jewish camp, affords them to go to Jewish day school, take trips to Israel, all the things you need. You're not going to be able to do it because your loved one died at an inopportune time. Our tradition tells us that if we can go into a private space, if we can go into our basement, and we can do our tax returns so no one else will see, even though we should, be, we should be sitting shiva, we're allowed to do it. We can't do it for sport, but we're allowed to do it because it's happening privately. But if we're in the exact same scenario of someone that we're supposed to mourn for, and they die three days before Christmas Eve, and we're an entertainer, and we have our biggest concert in Las Vegas on Christmas Eve, we're told... It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're sending your kids to Jewish day school, Jewish camp, all those things. Because you're doing it in a public arena, it is forbidden. Again, the rabbis are underscoring for us a critical and important value of what it means to differentiate between public and private. We also have a concept in our tradition called a chilu Hashem and a kiddush Hashem, something that is celebrated 
When we do something good for another person that makes the Jews look better, and something that's an embarrassment for other people that makes the Jews look worse. But the critical piece of that is it happens for others to see. It doesn't happen in a vacuum. Have we blurred the lines between public and private? Have we used peepholes, whether they be in social media, whether they be opportunistic or voyeuristic, to allow us to jump into the lives of people and see things that we weren't supposed to see but think it's permissible because it's in the public square? Rabbi Friedman shared a beautiful midrash, beautiful piece of teaching with me yesterday about Bilam, who's up on a mountain and looks down on the camps of Israel and sees four camps, four tents. And he says the words that we're supposed to say every time we walk into a synagogue. How beautiful and sweet your tents are, O Israel. Why did Bilam say the tents were so sweet? Four tents encamped together. The answer is, is that the portal, the entry to all four of the camps, faced in such a direction that by entering and exiting each tent, you couldn't see into another which meant the four tents might have been part of a bigger community, but each of them were afforded a sense of privacy too. And that mattered. That mattered. I'm not the moral police. It's not my job to come by and tell all of you what you've done right and what you've done wrong. That's for you to do. That's why you all have a conscience. My job is to set a compass and coordinates of what I think Judaism asks of us today. And in doing so, I would say unequivocally, unequivocally, that we are part of a violation should any of us look at pictures online of people who didn't want them seen. It's just as much of a crime to search and look at them as it is for those who hacked into it in the first place. And knowing most of you in the value system you're a part of, most of you, I hope, would never accept money knowing it came from stolen funds. And we shouldn't enjoy the pleasure for those of you who find that and looking at people's bodies who didn't ask for them to be seen. I'll close with this beautiful teaching from the Talmud, Masachet Nida, that teaches, There are three partners in the creation of a human being, one's mother, one's father, and God. What that teaching unequivocally tells us is that what happens consensually between two people who are in a loving relationship only has the place for God to be in there also. It's not a place for all of us to join in. It's a clear, delineated line between the public and the private, one that we should respect, one that we should understand, and one that we should celebrate. And as we read today in the Torah and the Parsha of Kitavo, all of the things for which we should be cursed, for setting a blind person on the wrong path, for sleeping with a family member, for taking advantage of someone, we should add to the list, Aror, cursed be the person who violates the sanctity that they have with themselves, their bodies, and another. Because if we blur those lines and we make no distinguishment between the public and the private, then we have not only done a moral crime against these people, We've done a crime against our tradition and our Torah that calls for a separation of the two. Let us remember that, and let us all hear that call to make that distinction.